Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Over the Cap podcast. It's July 3rd, 2023, and this is Jason Fitzgerald. You can find me on Twitter, uh, I guess, if you can actually still see some tweets, uh, at Jason underscore OTC, or you can email me, Jason, at overthecap.com. Yeah, I, I don't know what the whole deal is uh, with Twitter right now. I, I don't really get this whole uh, rate-limiting thing that the, they've decided to do. So I, I haven't really been on there the last couple of days too much, but uh, you know, hopefully most people are able to uh, access everything pretty normal. Uh, so happy July 4th, everyone. Uh, we're getting in a little bit later than I expected. I thought I would do this on Saturday night. But at the last minute, um, my son decided that I thought he was going to sleep. And next thing I know, he decided it's time for Fortnite. Um, it wasn't too late, but by the time he got done Fortniteing, it was late enough to where I just decided uh, not going to happen tonight. And, you know, since we, we have the uh, day off in the middle of the week and we weren't going anywhere for the holiday, I figured, uh, you know what, I'll slip this one in on a Monday night. Uh, so we've got a little bit of beer tonight. We've got the uh, Montauk Wave Chaser IPA. Uh, this is pretty good. So this is actually what I was uh, drinking the other night. Uh, so we got a couple of these left. And if I get through these, then uh, I think I have some dogfish head that's, uh, you know, safety stock of some dogfish head uh, IPAs that I can always go to. Uh, this is really the first time that I've tried this particular one was just this, this last uh, two weeks or so. Um, I think last week it was their summer ale that I tried, which was surprisingly pretty good. Um, I just decided that I, I would try something a little bit different. I think I mentioned it online that uh, I was having that and would definitely try it again. A lot of people recommended the uh, Wave Chaser IPA. So I said, um, you know what? I saw it there this week and I said, I'll give it a shot. And, you know, it's pretty good. It, similar to the summer ale in that it, it has a lighter kind of taste to it. So that that's almost like a negative in a sense that I can easily see myself, especially if this is, you know, a little day drinking or something, just flying through these things. Uh, so I'm going to try not to do that. We're going to try to nurse through these uh, during the course of the podcast tonight. Um, but this is pretty good. So I, I would add this to uh, to the rotation of uh, IPAs, I think, that I get. But definitely, it, for whatever reason... Um, feels much more like something that I would have more as a summertime uh, drink than something that I, w I would have kind of wintertime. I know it kind of sounds weird, but uh, it is, this kind of has that um, that feel for me uh, with that. Uh, I'm joined by Nellie the Bunny. Nellie, anything? Anything. We got a treat. We're good. All right. Nellie's good. Uh, so Nellie, I'm sure, is uh, going to join in momentarily with some important news and information. Uh, um, you know, slow time of year right now with the NFL, uh, not too much going on. Um, you know, you, you get the, you know, usual things with the couple of the players on the franchise tag and, um, you know, a couple of, you know, free agents who are out there, you know, DeAndre Hopkins, I guess, being the biggest name at the moment. Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny, you know, you, you have all this attention that's given to these players because they're big name talents, right? You know, DeAndre Hopkins is a absolutely great football player, uh, probably getting towards the end of his career, gets a lot of attention. You know, people put out these lists, you know, these are the most, these are the best free agents available right now. Like these players have to get signed. How much are they going to be? Can they create the cap room for them? 
it's like when you're available at this time of year, you're not really a highly sought after free agent. You know, once in a while, a guy slips through the cracks, you know, a, um, you know, Antonio Brown that just kind of manipulated his way out of uh, Oakland. Um, They were still in Oakland at the time, I think. Uh, Anyway, manipulated his way off of the Raiders and ends up signing the, the deal with the Patriots. And that's really about it. I mean, you've had Jadavion Clowney usually be available through late August and... You know, usually he's signed for somewhere close to ten million, but most of the guys they they don't sign for anywhere near that that type of money. And um, you know, I I think we get blind by the names. And this is something that used to happen a lot with football in the past. Is you would have a lot of teams that would kind of get blind by the name, and not really consider the fact that there's a reason that these players are available at this point in time. You know, it was like the, the early days of free agency and, you know, the Jets are bringing in guys like Art Monk or Ronnie Lott or something like that. Um, you know, but that that was kind of par for the course then. You know, you, you would see these name players and, you know, you would go out of your way to get them. And I, I think as fans, I think we still kind of latch on to that because we, we still have this um, this thought that, these players are still really good. And the fact is, they're just, they're not. You know, the the life cycle of the, the NFL player is just so short. You know, you could be a dominant player today, and a year from now, you're just trying to fight to keep a job in the league. Um, you know, it, it's really tough. It's a, it, it was actually something a little bit I was thinking about the other day. Uh, I don't remember what I was listening to. Um... Something, I don't I don't remember if it was unexpected points. I, I really can't remember. Uh, you know, the, the discussion in there was about, you know, the different things with analytics and, you know, the analytics in sports and adopting analytics and everything else. And, uh, you know, really what made me think about it, and it's one of the things I'll talk about here, and that's the restructuring of the football contracts. But it, it's that... For the other sports where the use of analytics is, you know, far more widespread, it's there's been a lot more work that's been done. It's been adopted by pretty much all the teams, whereas what you see, I think, in the NFL is more like very early adoption. And it's more along the lines of like, well, we at least want to have something in place in the event we end up using this stuff more often. Versus really proactively, I think, trying to utilize, um, you know, some of the tools. But some of the difficulties with doing this is the NFL is, in my mind at least, such a changing league year to year um, compared to a lot of the, the other leagues. Like in baseball, you know, you flip on baseball and you feel like some of the players just kind of last forever. And the game itself is pretty static. Players last for a long time. The game is pretty consistently played. And it takes a while for players to, to kind of work their way through the minor league system sometimes and start to replace players, um, you know, on the major league level. You know, basketball, most teams right now play the same style. And a lot of that is because of what the data says about 
how to shoot game, uh, you know, the pace of the game that works for pretty much everybody universally. Um, the way that that would go. And again, you know, I'm always amazed sometimes, you know, I'll hear about a player re-signing or a player, um, you know, being involved in a trade. And it's like, man, that guy's still in the league. Like it, it stuns me sometimes, um, for how long players last, but you know, the NBA draft is basically a one round draft. So you're placing like a guy a year, um, you know, in the league. And that's assuming that all those guys make it. Some of them don't, uh, you know, sometimes I think they still, I think you still get the teams that, um, you know, pick some guys that maybe aren't ready to come to the league right now. So, you know, you don't lose as much in the NFL. I mean, you basically have 20% league-wide turnover just in terms of draft picks coming in and taking jobs from other players. And you've got a whole bunch of undrafted free agents that come in and take jobs. And it's just like, it's always changing. You know, it's, it's just harder to get a handle on it. You know, not only do you have the free agent aspect where you've got players switching teams, you know, and a couple things with trades and stuff, but, you know, you, you've got the fact that nowadays teams just kind of churn on a league basis. You know, you just churn the players in and out, in and out, in and out, in that, you know, they're they're sticking around for two seasons, maybe three seasons, and then you're like, okay, you know, you're too expensive now. We're going to try somebody else that is a tiny bit cheaper and has a little bit more upside than you have. And sometimes I think that makes it hard when... Sometimes you do studies on certain things and, you know, you you try to drill down on certain stuff, but you realize that some of the data from the past might not necessarily be the um, best data to use right this very second, Um, you know, just because of the way things change. Uh, You know, I I think that's one of the problems that exists with some of the win probability models um, that are out there. And and this mainly probably pertains to the ESPN one only because the ESPN models, really for everything, uh, just seem very overconfident in their ability to, um, you know, predict certain types of outcomes. But, you know, I'm assuming at least that most of that stuff is it's based on years and years and years of data. But the game itself has changed so much, you know, in in some ways because some of the teams are using more and more of this data, uh, specifically on fourth downs. But once you change those inputs, you know, on a pretty consistent basis in terms of the way teams maybe are approaching scoring and stuff like that, it it changes things around. Like, you know, the the old style, which you'll still get the announcers to call for all the time, and some of the teams will lean into this. You know, they, you're down 21 points, you know, at the beginning of a third quarter. And, you know, you, you'll get someone coming out there and saying, you know, the, the key to this is that they got to settle down. They got to settle down. They got to start running the ball. They got to put a drive together and get some points on the board. And then we can get a ball game going. And it's like, you're not going to come back from 21 points down if your goal is to put together an eight-minute drive that maybe gets seven points. You know, you, you just, you're not going to leave yourself enough time the rest of the game, you know, to, to probably make a comeback. But you do see so many teams that play a faster style and don't do that kind of stuff that it does tend to break these systems um, simply because of that. So anyway, you know, I want to look at restructures 
this is some work that I do occasionally, um, you know, just on a private basis for certain things. Um, and I'm assuming that that beeping noise there was Jacob must have something still running with one of his buddies doing Discord or something like that. Um, hopefully that's off now. Uh, but anyway, you know, some of the stuff that we do with restructures or we look at some stuff and, um, you know, you try to get some things. And I was like, you know, I, I think that this might be a good thing to start to look at as we get more and more teams that restructure and you start to look into, um, you know, ways that it might benefit teams and it might hurt teams. But when I started to gather the data on it, you could see that there were clear changes in the league patterns. You know, if you go back to like 2013, 2014, um, you know, that kind of era, the majority of teams that were restructuring contracts were for the most part teams that were just, you know, in a really bad salary cap spot, um, you know, for a while. And this was probably, this actually predates that, but for a while it would have been teams like Dallas and Washington, um, you know, they were best known for doing that. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was another team that every year would have to restructure to be compliant with the cap. But you only had a couple of teams doing it. And the teams that were doing it were pretty much doing it because they had no other options. Like just the way that they, they had their roster structured, the way they had everything, they didn't really have any options. As you started to go through time, you started to realize, well, yeah, there are still those teams that are restructuring because they don't have a choice. You start to realize that there, there's more and more teams that are doing this as a way to, um, I, 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 more as a strategic way to try to uh, maintain options and flexibility with the salary cap versus doing stuff because they absolutely have to do it. Right now, Atlanta had to do it. Chicago in recent years has had to do it. New Orleans has to do it. Other teams, it's very different. So when I went back and looked at it, I really thought that the only time frame that really made sense, um, you know, to really look at was 2020 onward. You could make a case for 2019 you know, in 2019, you did start to have a couple of more teams that did it. In part, I, I think it was because of the um, uncertainty with the CBA. Uh, maybe some teams just thinking about it a little bit more. When 2020 hit, you had a lot more restructures as time was, as it was getting closer to the season, right? Um, you know, and you, you had all the COVID stuff that was going on and you had teams that were... Um, you know, being a little bit more active with that in trying to maximize their carryover that they could bring into the 2021 season, which is when stuff was really, you know, going to impact them. And then what you see as time goes on, it's more teams and more teams and more teams, you know, restructure contracts. And you get to the point where it's enough of the league doing it to where you can start to try to divide teams into different types of buckets and, you know, see how they perform uh, based on the level of restructuring. Now, if you want to follow along with the numbers, uh, you can go to OTC and you can check out the article. But uh, the first thing that I did was I wanted to not just look at the restructure level because I didn't think that that was necessarily fair 
because again, we're talking about teams that are doing something strategically and teams that are doing it out of necessity. So for example, a couple of years ago, and it might've been 2020, off the top of my head, I don't remember which year it was, Dallas and Philadelphia, before the regular season began, restructured a bunch of contracts. They had no intention of using that salary cap space for anything in the season. What they were doing was being very smart in saying, we're going to maximize our carryover for next year. So in a sense, we're getting a double set of restructures because we're going to restructure these players now, create a lot more cap room, carry it over next year when there's going to be problems with the cap. And then the year after that, um, we're going to be able to restructure players again. And that's really going to help us with the salary cap. And I thought that was a very different situation than teams that are utilizing the restructure as a way to function, you know, as a way to either just simply be salary cap compliant or a way to go out there and spend money in a given year. So what I actually ended up doing was calculating the restructures for every team in the league uh, from 2020 to 2022. And I took out from that however much carryover went into the next year. So in other words, if a team restructured um, to create $20 million in cap room, but they carried over $18 million, it means they only really needed $2 million of that money. So I netted that out and I thought that would actually put the teams in a better perspective as to what they're doing with the money. You know, is the money being used to really focus on today or is the money being used in a sense to just maximize your flexibility tomorrow? And, you know, the, the one big takeaway that I had from this is that it's the playoff teams that really, really, really buy into the concept of restructuring contracts. Um, much more than the non-playoff teams. So the playoff teams, uh, since that point in time, 78% of teams that made the playoffs uh, restructured at least one contract, um, you know, the following year. The average utilization, so the, the average cap space as a percentage of the salary cap, the unadjusted cap that year, was 7.5%, and the median was 6 uh, For non-playoff teams, it's about 54% that restructured um, the average cap created is 4.6%. That average is bloated in large part because of the Saints really not making the playoffs and just having a ridiculous amount of money that's uh, been created. So the median is actually just 1.1%. Um, so that that's more along the lines of what the numbers are for the non-playoff teams. It's a, it's a very low level of restructures. Now, I, I should define this as a restructure here. When we're talking about restructures, we're just talking about a modification to the existing contract. So in other words, a guy has a base salary of $10 million and you've decided to pay $9 million as a bonus, $1 million as a base salary. And you know, you're, you're changing the accounting for that contract. I'm not including option bonuses. You, you could argue um, that an option bonus could be included, but I kind of look at that as a team has done planning 90% of the time, I would say the, the restructures are in many ways unplanned for, or in many ways, it's just a, you know, a shrug of the shoulder when you sign the contract and we'll go, well, we'll see what happens when, you know, next year rolls around. Um, you know, I, I don't look at it as much as a, a planning mechanism. I'm not including contracts that are renegotiated, meaning a player takes a pay cut. Like that, that to me is not a restructuring of a contract. There might be negatives associated with doing that, 
but that's not a restructure of a contract. All right, that's that's not that. That's uh, that's a different kind of bucket um, that we would look at. So anyway, when I looked at the um, the playoff teams, it was you know relatively clear that teams that don't do a lot with the restructures um, don't return to the playoffs at as high a level. Uh, you know, forty four percent for the teams that do nothing. About thirty eight percent of the teams return to the playoffs that are between zero and five percent of the cap. Those numbers increase as the um, you know the ratios go up. But I, I think the the more interesting thing is that most of the teams are not really improving. So when we get to the playoff teams, it's a different level, I, I think, of expectation that comes for those teams, right? You know, you, you could have the Tennessee Titans or, uh, you know, Minnesota last year. Minnesota made a divisional round, right? So Minnesota makes a divisional round. Anything that doesn't lead to getting beyond that round in 2023 would probably be considered a failure. You know, it's like if you make the AFC or the NFC championship game, the next year, if you don't get to probably get to the Super Bowl, you're probably going to consider it a failure of a season because you're going to see this window kind of closing, this window of opportunity closing on you. And, um, you know, that, that was one of the things that you saw here is that it's very hard to improve if you're a playoff team, right? It, it's near impossible to improve. So, you know, again, now this is a very small sample of teams. Um, you know, teams that didn't restructure at all, only 25% of those teams improved, um, you know, in the, their playoff position. No teams improved that were between 0 and 5%. Teams between 5 and 10%, about 38% improved. Uh, there was only two teams between 10 and 15. Um, all, both of those two teams improved their playoff standings. Teams above 15%, 25% of them. So, I mean, you, you can kind of, you know, do the math there. You, you'll come up with about 50% of the teams improved their, um, you know, their position, um, you know, that, that were at a, a higher restructure level. Those aren't great numbers, and that has nothing to do with restructures or not restructuring. It just has to do with, a, I think, having an understanding of what the odds are of really improving your position um, one year to the next. It's very difficult to do in the NFL. It's just a, it's just a really hard thing. You know, if, if you're one of these teams that's got these super quarterbacks, you know, if you've got Patrick Mahomes, if you've got Josh Allen... If, um, you know, you have Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, or at least did, you know, let's hope Aaron Rodgers is still that kind of player. You know, when you had those kind of players, you could probably, um, you know, risk a little bit more because you've got a better chance of advancing just based on the talent level of your quarterback. Um, But at the same time, I think you have to ask yourself, well, our quarterback is that good. Do we really need to do all these restructures to you know, bring some extra players in, um, you know, and e- even this, and this, this is, I thought was pretty interesting. You know, if you look at teams that actually improve their records, you know, playoff teams, 
Um, you know, again, it's just hard to do. Teams that don't restructure at all, 45% improved, only 12% improved between 0 and 5%, 5 to 10%, 36% improved, 33% improved between 10 and 15, and about 17% improved that were between 15 and 100. So these teams are not doing better in the regular season. It's just that a couple of those teams actually did a little bit better um, when the playoffs rolled around. And, you know, that that's obviously important, um, you know, for, for what you're going to do. Um, for non-playoff teams, you know, uh, teams that didn't restructure at all. Now, these are the teams that have basically gutted their rosters out. Only 28% made the playoffs for teams that restructured between 0 and 5% and 5 and 10%. Uh, 50% of those teams made the playoffs in the following year. Uh, teams that had higher utilization levels were probably around 35% um, of those teams making it. And if you look at the improvement, and again, these are teams that didn't make the playoffs, so they have a much better chance to improve. You know, teams that didn't restructure at all, 70% had an improved record than the prior year. 79% had an improved record that were between 0 and 5%. Uh, 75% were improved between 5 and 10%. So again, we're we're talking relatively small samples or just a couple of seasons that we really can look at here. But I think it it just goes to illustrate how hard it is to get better in the NFL when you were good the the prior year and how it's easier to improve um from where you were the season before. So I think the the more interesting thing is what do we what do we look at as like a longer term thing, right? So the restructure is basically for most teams a short term solution that possibly creates a long term problem, right? We by dropping our cap numbers in twenty twenty three, we're increasing those cap numbers in twenty twenty four. We're increasing our dead money potential in twenty twenty four. We're, you know, decreasing our flexibility in the future with all of these things that we do. So, you know, it's like it's going to have a lagging, I would believe at least, a lagging impact um, on our salary cap. And, you know, kind of gives you an idea as to what the teams may or may not be able to do in the future. So of the teams that really, you know, of the playoff teams that, um, you know, really restructured at a much higher level, all right, those teams dropped on average four games from their high point. So our assumption would be, so in other words, if you were a team that restructured in 2020, I'm sorry, in 2021, and you, you were a 10-win team in 2020, right? So you were a 10-win team in 2020. 2021, you're like, well, we've, we want to be able to improve on that. Um, maybe you did, maybe you didn't. On average, those teams are going to be down to about six wins um, come 2022. So it's like, it's almost as if you're putting all your eggs into 2021, in that case, you know, in the restructure season, and you might be creating hardships for yourself in the future. You know, the the Rams are probably a perfect example of that. 
you know, the Rams restructured a lot of contracts, um, obviously traded for a lot of players. And for them, it paid off. You know, they, they made the Super Bowl, but it was a crash and burn um, right after that. So, you know, that they're, they're a team that probably shows that negative. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think we would also talk about as being that negative on the restructuring of contracts is once you, you push yourself to where your salary cap becomes inflexible, you know, that, that you don't have that, that ability to do that. And, you know, you, you're really cutting yourself off from one of the few avenues that you have to improve your roster, right? You've, you've got basically three ways to improve your roster in the NFL. The draft, free agency, and trades. Now, trades are a very small amount of stuff that we see in the NFL. But occasionally, um, you know, you do see some bigger trades that go down, especially recently, I think, for quarterbacks. Uh, but, you know, you, you're basically, once you create salary cap issues, you're blocking yourself off from free agency. And you're probably blocking yourself off from trades. So all you have is the draft. And again, the draft is probably going to have a lagging impact as well. So for a team like the Rams, now they, they didn't have a big draft class, I don't believe, in 2022. But for the Rams, it's like, okay, we need some of these players in 2022 to step up that we drafted. Well, the odds are they're not going to be impactful until 2023. So, you know, it's almost like you've cut yourself off from free agency. You've cut yourself off from trades. And odds are the draft picks aren't going to help you this year either. So you've just created like this, this really bad situation, um, I think, for your team the following year. Uh, for the teams that restructure between 5 and 10%, they had a change in record of uh, about 3 uh, as you get the lower numbers, it was a change in record of one and then uh, two, um, if you didn't do anything at all. So, you know, a little bit less impact there. Uh, for the non-playoff teams, teams that had a higher utilization, they improved by about three um, in the two years. Five to 10% uh, improved by about almost four games, 3.7 games on a record. Zero to 5% uh, improved by 1.6 games. And the teams that didn't do anything were 2.5 games. So I thought that was a uh, that was an interesting one. And the other one here is, well, what happens dead money wise? Now, this is not necessarily attributed to just the fact that you restructured the contract of that player. You know, it's not like okay, I restructured Josh Allen. Oh crap, I got to cut him. Obviously, you're not cutting Josh Allen, but what you've done to his cap charge may change the way that you're approaching the rest of your team. And I thought this was pretty interesting too. When you look at all the teams that restructured over 15%, this is not broken up into playoff teams or uh, non-playoff teams, the average dead money as a percentage of the cap the following year was 25%. Median was 24%. That's a huge number. Teams that were between 10 and 15, those numbers dropped to 19.4 and 16.7. Teams between 5 and 10, your average dead money was 13%. Between 0 and 5, it was 
and teams that didn't do anything was 12.4 because your average dead money in the league <clears throat> is in the ballpark of that, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15%. So again, this just adds to the long term of why we see, especially with those playoff teams, why we see the numbers dropping so dramatically over a two-year period. It's it's the fact that you, you've just... You've created a problem a lot of times with your roster by being overconfident, I think, in the players that are on the team. Rather than making maybe difficult decisions to not add to the team to, you know, that you think is going to make you take that next step, right? The, The Von Miller to the Buffalo Bills, that that was going to be what puts them over the top. You know, rather than doing that or rather than, you know, deciding that you want to keep three players when really you should only be keeping one of those players, you know, you're just creating a situation where down the line you have to make these tough decisions and those tough decisions are probably going to hurt. You know, if you were a successful team, if you were successful with the restructures, Odds are you're going to take a step back. You know, the the now the next year. It's like it's going to be very hard to improve two years in a row. Um, you know, and in many cases, you've created this situation that is almost like a disaster. Um, so I, I think when you look at this, and I, I think you look over time, I, I think that I look at this very similar to the way that I look at dead money. And the dead money stuff was something that I, I didn't expect to really have that conclusion with um, when I first looked at it. And my first thought was going to be like, yeah, you know, having dead money is a bad thing, right? But then you look at it and you realize, okay, everybody in the league has dead money, right? So as long as you're in that average um, frame, you know, that, that average range, it's probably a good thing. Because if you do have some dead money, obviously, yeah, that, that means some contracts didn't work out the way that you hoped. But it means you, you took risk, right? You took risk to improve your football team. And taking risks to improve your football team is usually a good thing. On top of that, you were pushing cap money to the future to improve your... Um, salary cap position relative to the rest of the league. So maybe you could add more players to your team. So, you know, you you were utilizing your cap without going crazy, um, you know, to, to probably the maximum extent to try to maximize what you could do. That's very different than a team that was carrying no dead money, where most of the time that was just because of the way they structured their deals, right? The Raiders, the Buccaneers... Um, where they just didn't use signing bonuses. And you say, well, yeah, you know, we're able to cut those guys free and clear. And it's like, okay, if you're cutting a player after two years on that contract, that contract was a failure. So even though you don't have dead money on your books, you just carried that dead money in their salary cap charges those first two years. And the salary cap increases each year. So that means as a percentage of the cap, you were actually wasting more money on 
poor football players, than the teams that carried dead money for those players, you know, in the third year. Because the, the percentage of the cap that w- their cap numbers were in years one and year two was going to be lower than the teams that weren't, you know, uh, carrying any prorated money in those deals. And, you know, I, I think when we look at contracts, this is probably a topic for another time. You know, wh- when you value a successful contract, and I hear this all the time, you know, the Andrew Brandt, well, it's two years and we'll see, or... You know, well, they were able to get out of that one in three years, or I love the way general manager X structures these contracts because he can get out of that deal in three years. It's like, that's every contract in the league. Um, You know, you want to look at these contracts and, you know, as a rough guide, I would say to make a contract successful, at least for the longer term deals, you know, the shorter term deals, maybe a little bit different, but... For the longer-term deals, you basically need to get all the guaranteed years plus one out of that contract for it to be a worthwhile deal. Because when when you sign that deal, you're obligated no matter what on those guaranteed seasons. So if a player has guarantees just in the first and second year and you cut him in the third, with the exception of teams that were just in a you know disaster salary cap situation... That means the player couldn't have been very good in year two. Because if he was good in year two, you wouldn't be cutting him in year three. So that means at the most you got one decent year out of that contract. And you might not have even gotten that. You know, because if a player was poor in year two, you might have you might give the benefit of the doubt if they happen to be good in year one. So if you're cutting that player, you, you should not be doing a victory lap about, well, we didn't have dead money. We were able to get out of it. So you want to have the guaranteed years to where you're not thinking of cutting him. So, you know, the first year is the first year. You don't even want the possibility of a release creeping into your head in year two. Probably don't want the the thought of a, you know, release creeping into your head in year three. If it happens in year four, okay, you got your two guaranteed years in the third year. You know, you, you were hoping for the best and maybe it didn't work out. But... You know, you, you can't look at these contracts and just be like, well, yeah, they, they were able to get out of it. Um, you know, that, that's silly talk. Anyway, um, you know, going back on the, the restructures, just like with the dead money, um, I think it's the same thing. A little bit of restructure money is a good thing. You know, you are trying to improve your salary cap position relative to the league, and there's about 10 teams that probably aren't going to restructure in most years, um, you know, or restructure and actually use the money in most years. I would say that uh, that's the way it typically is. So while there might be certain occasions like Chicago this year where they were just so above everybody, there's no point in even doing it. Um, most of the time, you know, you're improving your position relative to the league and you're just keeping that flexibility open, you know, that that flexibility to add a guy in free agency that maybe you didn't think was going to be available. Um, but at least you can open those discussions because you knew you had the cap room to do it. Um, you know, it gives you that ability maybe to do an extension that you were kind of hedging about a little bit. Uh, you know, it gives you the ability to trade for a player. You know, it, it just opens up a lot more for you to do. And again, as long as everybody's doing it, I don't think there's any harm in it. 
Uh, you just don't want to do it excessively. You know, and if you're a playoff team, don't chase it thinking it's going to be the magic reason that you make the Super Bowl the next year because it's probably not. And if you go overboard with it, you're probably going to be like the Rams. You're going to be like the Packers will likely be this year. Um, you know, a couple of other squads, you know, the, the, the way that it's going to be the year after that. And I, I think looking at those numbers, you know, 5 to 8% is probably a pretty good number. Um, you know, and I think the other thing that you want to do is start studying what some of these other teams are doing. Because restructuring to build up carryover for whatever reasons uh, is not really a bad thing. And I think what you're going to start to see more teams do, maybe not go all in on some of the contract restructures, um, you know, to where you're bringing the salary down to the minimum. But maybe you kind of go halfway or you go three quarters of the way in terms of creating cap room. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, players who are veteran players are going to start to, you know, start to kind of fail. Um, you know, you're going to have to start to think of replacing those players. So if you don't necessarily go the full way in on, you know, a player, it might leave you a little bit more flexibility with them in the future to where you didn't increase their dead money by so much that you have to cut them. Or, I mean, take on a large cap charge if you did cut them. Um, but the other thing that it does is if you do this with a lot of players on your roster, it's kind of what Philadelphia is doing right now, I think, uh, Cleveland. And they're doing it by building it right into the contracts as they sign them with these option bonus structures. What you're doing here is in many ways you're diversifying the negatives um, from the restructures because you're not utilizing it all. It's like a safety stock, right? What you don't use, you're carrying over to next year. But what you're doing is you're, you're going to assume, okay, some of these restructures aren't going to work out. right? You know, like restructuring Lane Johnson, for example. and In his case, they extended him, I think, recently, right? That, that was an extension. Um, that's probably a bad choice. Older player um, gets hurt every now and then. You know, probably going to end up no different than like that Brandon Brooks one that they did a couple of years ago, and that that was an extension. But uh, you know that that was a way that they had that contract structured too that led to that extension. But when you use this type of restructuring with say seven players on the team, eight players on the team. For every player that's bad and the contract doesn't work out, another player is probably going to exceed the level of um, that his contract is. And you're going to be able to continue to restructure that player because he continues to kind of beat the NFL odds and play at a higher level. So kind of by, you know, utilizing it with a number of different players, I almost think you're diversifying um you know, you're diversifying your portfolio kind of, and you're kind of eliminating the fact that, okay, what happens if you go all in on one or two players and those two players flop, you know, now you're stuck with, now the Eagles got out of this one, but then you're stuck with the, you know, Alshon Jeffrey kind of situations, or maybe even a Carson Wentz one or something. But, um, you know, with that, so I, I think you're going to see more and more teams do that, where you kind of do this with a handful of players every year, 
knowing that one of those, you're probably going to say, ah, I wish I didn't do that. But a couple others are going to work out and they're going to, you know, at the very least, they're going to offset it. And you may end up in a better position. You probably won't end up in a worse position um, with what you end up having to do. So I, I do think that's something that we're going to start to see a little bit more of in the NFL. And I think we're going to see teams start to use it a little bit more strategically to maximize their carryover year to year. Um, you know, and try not to get in positions to where the salary cap charges for individual players ever get out of control. Now, there's a couple situations where players are going to get out of control, namely quarterbacks. But I think teams are going to be a little bit better with that. And one of the benefits that teams have right now is that even though contracts have grown, um, you know, top-end contracts have grown at a higher pace, a uh, higher rate um, than the salary cap, the structure of these contracts is fundamentally very, 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 very different than where things were like a decade ago when teams really got in trouble with the salary cap. So not only do you have the benefit of the, the agents doing the Alshon Jeffrey restructures to let you cut them um, and not hurt your cap or hurt your cap as badly, but you don't see structures on these deals with these the, the massive bonus money up front, um, you know, that, that just really wipes you out from day one um, on the contract. You just you don't have that anymore. Um, you know, you, you, you again, you're taking almost a um, half and half approach with the way that you structure that first year. You know, there's some exceptions, right? Jalen Hurts deal. Um, you know, with the minimum P5 and the big bonuses. But for the most part, teams are a little bit more cautious when they do these deals because a lot more is focused on the guaranteed package versus the bonus package. And, you know, the bonus package in the past would have been like, okay, you know, if a player is going to get $30 million guaranteed, they're going to get a $28 million signing bonus, $2 million in a P5 that first year. And they won't have guarantees anything after that, but I mean, you're talking about a huge signing bonus and those proration numbers are already high. And then those salaries, those P5s in the future years are going to kick up. And, you know, you've you've already locked yourself in before anything to a certain style of contract. So right now, I think the NFL is at a, uh, a big advantage when it comes to that. And that can help them with the restructures because, again, you can kind of pick and choose the way you do it um, you know, to maximize the return on it and in many ways minimize the negative outcomes. So anyway, I, I think it's kind of an interesting little topic of research um, that there's more that can get done with it. But again, it's like you, you go to the past and you see it's like two teams here, two teams there. Now in this current era, it's like 18 teams a year or something like that, 20 teams a year. We can start to look at this more as a... Um, a very uh, possibly a useful strategy versus more like an outlier where you know it's just teams that are in trouble. Um, as for teams that have used it the most, you know, the Saints were off the chart. I had to take them off the chart so I, I could uh, throw a graph out there um, that made sense. But like Green Bay, the Rams, the Eagles, the Buccaneers, um, you know, th those are the teams that have really used this a lot in the last three years. 
uh, Atlanta, Raiders, Cowboys, Titans, Chiefs, Vikings, Texans. Um, Texans obviously have the worst outcome of those teams. Chiefs the best. Um, you know, so it's a, it, it's just a, a little interesting study, I think, is the, the things that you, you want to utilize. But I, I think you definitely got to look at this more as a lagging indicator. And you just don't want to go so far in that you, you cause your franchise to have to hit a complete reset button to where it, it's almost like the, uh, the panic alarms go off a year or two later. Um, you know, the, the other topic that I, I guess was kind of out there, um, in the last week was gambling in the NFL. Uh, I've probably talked about this a little bit and I will say I, I've changed my opinion on this a bit. This is something that, um, originally, okay. Uh, I was not in the, the Florio camp, which is just absurd, which is if the NFL is making money off it. Why can't the players bet on it? It's like, you just, I, I get click, 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 headline, click, whatever. You know, just use your head about that. I mean, everybody's making money off it, right? It's part of the revenue pool. If you are accepting gambling, you know, your your DraftKings, your FanDuel sponsorships, your MGM, whatever it is, as NFL is, it's shared with the players, and that's going to get distributed to the players as part of the CBA, as part of the salary cap. So let's just let let's just throw that out. Like, well, the players aren't benefiting, and the the owners are laughing their way to the bank. But when this first came down a couple of months ago, my first thought was, you know, the NFL's got to do a better job, um, you know, letting people know of really explaining this to the players. Um, you know, and I I still kind of think that you know with some of this. When you see how many are going, it's almost like this should have been like the, the baseball steroid thing originally where it's like, okay, we're going to do a random test sample or whatever it is. Everyone's going to get tested and you've got to be off the juice by the second test. It's almost like maybe everybody should have just gotten a pass or at least with the, the betting on the other sports from a facility thing. Um, but obviously they didn't do that. The, the NFL has gone all in on suspending the players. And, you know, it's basically going to end careers for guys. But, um, you know, I think it was Mitchell Schwartz that said it. You know, he's like, I know, you just don't gamble. Um, you know, it's it's pretty explicit, you know, right there when you're in with the team. Um, and, you know, he if it was him, if it was somebody else, um, and it could have been, but I think it was him. Uh, you know, he's probably right. You know, how they probably don't have much more they need to do. You know, this is very similar to the supplement stuff um, where people get nailed sometimes for certain supplements, tainted supplement, didn't know it was or didn't know the supplement was on a list or whatever. You've got a union. You you have this players association that you're paying money to, you know, at some point they have to step up and try to educate their players. You know, it, it's not just on the league. Now, could the league do more? Can, can the league ban you from accessing stuff when you're you're on site? Maybe they can. You know, and that would probably solve the problems of, you know, somebody betting on a uh, random sport while in the facility. 
Um, you know, but thinking that players should be able to gamble on football, I mean, that that's just silly. You know, and even if you just say, you know what, if a player was to gamble on his team today, all right, let's say I'm, I'm a member of the New York Jets, and blindly I have bet, uh, I've levied a bet that our team is going to hit the over, and I'm going to put an individual win for each game of the year. I'm okay with that because there's nothing that goes on or whatever. But once the season actually begins, um, you know, and you know who's who, you know, even just go to this like, well, what if they bet on their team to win? It's like, okay, what if they bet on their team to win week one, week two, week three? And then they just don't place a bet in week four. That's the same as betting on your team to lose. You know, maybe, maybe he just didn't have time to place the bet, but most likely that's a bet on the team to lose. You know, you, you, even when you're talking about other teams, you know, you've got friends, you know, it's very easy to pick up the phone and, you know, Hey, how's Mahomes' ankle looking? Uh, you know, we're, we're hoping we, we're hoping he can get in the third quarter and get a big enough lead and then, uh. You know, Henny, you're, I don't know who the backup is this year. Uh, you know, he'll take it home for us. Okay. All right. I'm, I'm betting, I'm betting against the Chiefs now. Yeah. I'm going to bet the under. Um, you know, you, you can't have that kind of stuff out there. But in terms of the responsibility and where it lays to explain these rules, you know, if the NFL is giving you one thing during camp or whenever that just simply says, you know, don't bet on NFL games, which is, I think, pretty much all over the place. Don't bet on NFL games. And, you know, then you explain the rules, regardless of if you agree with them or not, um, you know, on betting on these, you know, other sports. And for whatever reasons why you can't do it from inside the facility, like wait until you get home, um, you know, to do it, uh, spelling out what fantasy sports is and isn't considered, all that kind of stuff. You know, as, as long as you're giving one thing there, even if you just want to say it's lip service, and I get it. You know, if I was 23, 24 years old, it probably goes in one ear, out the other, and the only words I'm picking up on is, yeah, it's okay to bet on this, and I'm tuning out the rest of it. Um, you know, I get that. But if you are, you know, the union... You know, you have player reps that should be communicating this to all your players. You should be giving out information. And maybe they are. Um, you know, but you should be hammering this stuff home. Agents, you know, they should be explaining this to their guys. Like, you can't do this. You, you know, you absolutely cannot bet on the game of football. You know, and explaining, just do... You don't even have to explain Just say... Do not bet while at work. End of story. You know, do not do not gamble when you're at work whatsoever. You know, do, don't come up with exceptions. Don't come up with, well, you can do this. You can't do that. Just say no betting on football ever. No betting at work ever. And, you know, work covers this, 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 and this. It's easy, I'm sure, to send a text every week, put a post up every week on the PA site, do something that, um, you know, will get through to the players. You know, but that that's probably where the responsibility lies. It's not so much with the league. It, it is 
you know, probably more with the Players Association. And the uh, Players Association does have a new executive director. And whatever that process is, um, a lot of people are going to take that into, uh, into, you know, as just kind of a, a very weird backdoor way of doing business. And I know this dates back to, you know, when they used to have kind of these very open elections in the past. And, you know, you'd have a lot of guys, some of whom were probably qualified, some of whom weren't, uh, you know, running to to head the union. And, you know, you, you didn't want to have challenges to Demora Smith. And you, you would kind of come up with these weird rules that were in place to... I guess let the executive committee kind of um, bypass the body. And, you know, I, I don't know. I, I just don't think that that's right. You know, it, it's... It, you should be able to have a bunch of people come and give a presentation and say, you know, this is why I want to lead you guys. This is what I want to do for you. And, you know, don't just shut everybody out and say... We're going to run this for you, um, especially when the executive committee is probably a lot of players towards the end of their career. They, they can advise. They can come up with names. I, I'm not crazy about the idea, I think, of them doing the whole thing on their own. Um, you know, that, that just seems a little bit odd to me. Uh, now, for this, th- this is better than what happened years ago. You know, you're at least giving um, the new guy a lot of time to kind of get into the system before any kind of meaningful stuff goes on. So, I mean, that that's a good thing. And, you know, you'll see how stuff plays out. Um, I thought it would have been interesting to for them to go back to a football person. Um, maybe that was, maybe they just didn't want to do that. Um, you know, I, I thought that might have been interesting, at least a, a little bit, but... Um, a interesting process to say the least um you know but uh, you know if, if the majority of players don't care and they're they're cool with how it went down then i guess that's fine but that is a uh it's a bit of a shady process um i think that they had in place there to uh choose somebody to to be the uh, the next union leader all right let's get into questions here uh i'll start with email Let's see what I got here. And then I'll check Twitter, assuming I can still see it. Um, What is this? I'll check that. All right. Um, Let me see. I think I'm missing something here. All right, hopefully I'm not going to miss anything here. Uh, So Colby had this question. uh, Wondering how players got their positional designations and if how they can realistically change them. I mean, basically that's coming from the team. The teams are deciding where they're going to play. Really, the changes just come from the team. You know, sometimes the team will even approach someone and go, hey, what do you think about playing on offense instead of defense? Um, You know, and that's really where it is. Uh, is there any impact but uh, beyond the tag and the 50-year options on being in a position? And not really. Um, you know, I mean, 
I guess I shouldn't say that. I mean, if you're a tight end, you're not going to get a you're not going to get valued as a wide receiver. Um, you know, even as a free agent. But I mean, for the most part, that's that's people knowing that. Um, you know, teams if teams think they can put you in a different role, um, you know, they they will um pay you accordingly like when the when the Jets were going to sign Anthony Barr I think the Jets looked at him as saying okay maybe we could play him at edge and so they they had an offer that was more along the lines of being like a mid-level edge or a high-level linebacker um but I I think they looked at it like okay he might be able to be a pass rusher for us uh, but for the most part, yeah, it, it's basically those options and the tags that really uh, are going to be impacted by the position that a player has. But, you know, other than the, you know, whether you're a linebacker or a defensive end, um, really not too much happens with that. Michael, path to cap compliance for the Browns next year. Restructure Garrett and Watson while cutting Chubb and Cooper. Um, man, I haven't really looked at next year but let's take a look at the browns browns 2024 all right so yeah so probably cutting cooper um watson yeah you're gonna you're gonna restructure watson and that's gonna create a bunch of room for you um, you know, that, that's going to create like 40 million in cap space right there. Chubb. Yeah. Chubb is probably at a point where he has to, um, you know, perform at a very high level. Uh, Joku, I could see a situation where his salary gets brought down depending on how he plays this year. Um, you know, Willis will probably get extended. That'll bring his number down. Garrett's an interesting one. Um, you know, Garrett might have a lot more riding on this season than people think. Um, Cleveland's got a lot of smart people in there. Uh, Miles Garrett is going to be 29 years old in 2024 at some point. I'm not, I'm not sure what his birthday is. Um, so he's going to be 29. Depending on how he plays and how the team does... I could definitely see a scenario where they might consider trading him. Um, it would create about how much in cap room? About nine in cap room. But if they could get a haul for him uh, in a trade, I I could see a scenario where they look to move on, knowing that they're getting out of this a year before. And they're going to maximize their return and start to get some of these draft picks back that they gave up for Watson. Um, you know, even though you're, you're going to be losing a guy who's been a, you know, just a consistently dominant, um, you know, pass rusher for them. But I, I could definitely see a scenario where, um, you know, that kind of comes into play. Uh, if they want to keep them, you know, obviously then you're, you're probably restructuring that. But you, your main path to uh, cap compliance is just, restructure Watson, cut Amari Cooper, and probably do something with Nick Chubb. And that that probably, uh, you know, is going to cover you. All right, let's see. All right, let's go to Twitter. I don't see anything else in my email. 
Let me just do one quick search on podcast. I just want to make sure I didn't miss anything. Eh, I got too much junk mail. <laughs> uh, I think I got to that one before. All right, let's go to Twitter. Twitter is functioning for me. Just a couple questions, so this shouldn't take too, too long. Oh, here's one of my posts, too. I forgot about this. Cam Robinson got suspended. That's a big money loss for him. About $4.8 million. Whew. What a terrible suspension to get. Bad timing all around for him. All right, let's see. Chris, is the NFL the only league without guaranteed contracts? Let's pretend some legal ruling says not anymore. All deals guaranteed, how would it change the league? You would just see a bunch of one-year contracts. Now, if I'm smart enough to just look at a spreadsheet in Excel and say the um, you know average years that are completed on a free agent contract or two and the average years on a um, extension or three and the average years for a rookie in the first round or you know all the contracts are guaranteed so it's all it's four um, you know for a second rounder it's going to be close to four third rounder it's maybe three years and then the other guys are maybe two years maybe just one year for seven why in the world am I going to offer those players a four-year contract why am I going to offer anybody a five-year contract it would make free agency a lot more fun um, it'd make free agency a ton more fun all right, where you'd have these players each and every year going into free agency. But you would see the salaries, the annual values on the deals would drop, I think, because they'd all be short-term deals. Um, you know, and other than a couple of quarterbacks, and, you know, there might be a couple of crazy teams right at the beginning because whenever you do big rules changes, teams don't really have a feel for... Um, you know, the impact, um, you know, or how to manage those situations. And so sometimes they just go very aggressive. And then, you know, once it starts to bite a bunch of teams, then they change their minds around. But if you went into guaranteed contracts in the NFL, that's what would happen, would be a bunch of one-year deals. And my opinion of it is guaranteed contracts for NFL teams would be a bad thing, or for NFL players would be a bad thing. And I know you say, well, that's crazy. How does that make any sense? And the reason is because what I'm just saying, your contract lengths would go down. So you're not going to get the same kind of structures on these deals. So for example, if I sign a guy for five years on a contract that averages 20 million a year, maybe he's earning 35 million in the first year of that contract. If I'm only signing him for one, I'm not paying him 35 million. I pay him 20. You know, something like that. So I think overall it would be a big negative, um, you know, for a lot of the players. And, you know, it, it just wouldn't work out the way people think. It, it's just, it's a different sport. You know, what I mentioned before, when you have these other leagues where you're adding one player per team each year, and I know the rosters are smaller, right? The, the NBA rosters are... I don't even know how many players they are these days. Uh, 
13? 15, maybe? And basically, you're adding a guy to the league each year. You know, one player per team, you know, to the league. That's not league turnover. You know, baseball, all these players, you have a big minor league system, but it takes time to work your way up. It's just not a lot of turnover. You get a bunch of kids from college that come in and it just takes 25% of the NFL population and says, you're unemployed. Doesn't matter what these other guys have done or may do. They may be terrible, but we're going to give them a shot instead of you. And you look at the league population and in like a four-year period, there's only a handful of players you're probably going to find that were actually in the league four years ago. You know, five years ago. And if you made contracts fully guaranteed, even if it worked out in the short term, meaning the next two, three years, let's say this all happened next year, teams would very quickly get wise to it. They would get smart to it. And they would not um, guarantee those deals further. So, you know, really nobody would make out, I don't think at least better, other than free agency would be awesome. AL, uh, how important is a hard cap to the success of the NFL? I think from a perception standpoint, it's incredibly important. I think the perception is that the salary cap is the great equalizer. And I think over a long period of time, it might be. Um, but I think right now, you know, really what we've seen is that so much of your success is dependent on your quarterback that we're not seeing what we saw in the past, which was that the cap can kind of screw up even a team with a great quarterback and it can allow a team with a mediocre quarterback to have a pretty good run um, over a certain amount of seasons. I don't think we have that anymore. Uh, I think right now, if you have a good quarterback, you're just, you know, pretty much set. Um, but I, I do think that there there's other aspects of the cap as well that are kind of important for the league. It allows for some movement in free agency. It doesn't allow for enough movement. You know, I, part of me says that the league would be so much better off if they allowed more movement. It's like it, they, they'd have so much more in the offseason that people were interested in. But I understand at the same time they're looking to not spend money. Um, you know, and this would obviously allow them or force them to spend money. Um, but I think... I guess it, this this is probably what I think it would boil down to. If you eliminated the salary cap, but you kept in place the franchise tag and you kept in place the current draft system and the current contract length, I don't think the needle would move that much if they really changed a lot when it came to the cap. Um... The only way it would change, and again, this could happen on the longer-term approach, is if the franchise tag was limited to three seasons and you had a bunch of quarterbacks that 
smartly just said, well, we're going to go tag, 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 and then we're free agents. Um, that would be a change. That would be a, a pretty big change. Um, right now, that doesn't happen. It could happen, but really Cousins is the only guy that's pushed that issue. Um, but I think for the most part, as long as the draft stayed the same and the tag stayed the same, I think stuff would stay status quo even if there wasn't a cap. Um, I, I think. I, I think at least that, that that's what would end up happening. I know it, they, teams would probably hold on to certain um, players you know, for a little bit longer. Um, you know, than maybe they would have in the past. But I, I think that, um, I, I think the league would eventually kind of, it would eventually balance all out um, what they do. But, you know, the, the salary cap itself, I mean, I, I think that that gives an appearance that, um, you know, everything is kind of equal footing. And it is true, you know, at some point the cap can become damaging to teams, right? The cap was damaging to Atlanta. It's damaging to the Saints. It's damaging to the Packers. So I think the cap can damage teams. But at the same time, most of those teams were trending down anyway. So the salary cap probably hastened the downfall of those teams. But it was probably going to happen anyway. King Cole. Uh, I want to look at the full disaster scenario on the Browns. Um Cooper's injured, DPJ mediocre, is he not as good as hoped? Watson is the same quarterback as those uh, couple of weeks showed. Um, so everything is, in my mind, everything is relying on Deshaun Watson there. If Deshaun Watson is the guy that you saw at the end of the season, uh, Cleveland is shot because... You've given up so much draft capital for him. You have so much salary cap room invested in him. You have so many years invested in him. And if he's just a guy, you know, if, or a below average guy, if he's that kind of player, there's nowhere you can go as a franchise. Like you, you, you're blocked off from the draft. You're not completely blocked off from free agency, but you're in a tight spot with free agency. I mean, you are in a, for the most part, what you see is what you get roster. And if he is not putting up seasons that are MVP discussion seasons, I think you're pretty much screwed. Like when, when you make that kind of gamble on a quarterback and... You know, guarantees notwithstanding, just the trade package. You know, similar to Denver with Russell Wilson. Um, probably to a lesser extent, the Jets with Rodgers. But, you know, you you are gambling your future away on this guy being great. And if he's not great, you you failed. Your team is going to fail. So I, I think it's all very, very reliant on him. Um, because, you know, 
their quarterback last year played pretty well. And they were a very mediocre football team. Um, so that they need him to be, um, you know, just much, much, much better. Thomas, in earlier podcasts, you suggested the rookie contract lens should be shorter. Would that decrease the value of the draft picks? Teams that are spending time and energy on educating new players might be free agents after only two, three seasons. Um, and a beer of the night, Brewdog Punk IPA. I've had that before. That's uh, not too bad. Um, I don't think that decreases the value of the draft pick. You know, my assumption would be to, you know, and this is the same reason why a couple of teams used to do three-year deals. You know, the the Steelers and the Packers, I think, were the two that mainly did them. Um, If you do a shorter-term deal, your initial investment is also lower. You know, your signing bonus is going to drop accordingly. You know, if a player gets a... $200,000 $200,000 signing bonus, but now the deal is only two years. Well, you know, that signing bonus should only be $100,000. So, you know, your investment, um, your guaranteed investment has also dropped in that. Um, so I don't think that's an issue. The second thing is that I don't see how that diminishes the value of the draft pick simply because the best way to find good players is through the draft. Now, part of the benefit of the draft is obviously, yeah, you you have cost-controlled play for four years, you know, or five years. But even if you went into a system where you're talking about contracts that ran two years, um, for example, you're going to be extending those guys. And yes, you're going to be spending more money on the couple of players that you extend. Um you're going to be spending more money on those players, but you're also going to get more years out of those players. Now, I'm, I'm never one to give any kind of uh, the credit on the running back stuff or whatever, but e- even if you look at a guy like an Ezekiel Elliott, all right, who has become kind of the poster boy for bad extensions, right? Let's just look up his numbers. If we would do a deal, if he, if he had a two-year contract, Let's just say it was two years. So you would have gone in there, you would have done the two years, and you would have signed the extension, you know, whatever the number would be. Let's say it's the same amount of money. You would have gotten the first year 1,400 yards. You would have gotten another year at 1,357. You would have gotten another year at around 980. And then he probably would have been cut. Um, You know, so you would have gotten two decent years out of that deal. Um, you know, you would have cut him probably after the third, but I don't think you'd go about that feeling that bad because you would have gotten those seasons on the front end that were okay. The way that it works out now is, you know, you, you had the 1600 years, a rookie 980 the next year where I think that was the suspension year. 1434 year three, he gets extended, he gets the 1357, and now you want to cut him after the 980, but you can't because that extension just has guarantees and a structure that just goes on and on and on and on, and you just can't get out of the deal. So I think what it would actually do, even for the teams, I think it would align the actual exit years of the contract with when the teams actually want to get out of those deals. I think it would just make everything align properly. Um, You know, going back in time, 
to the old CBA, the really old CBA. The um, argument back then was basically that you had these rookies who were making too much money and you know that that money would be redistributed to this growing middle class of NFL veteran players. Obviously, that never happened, right? They strip rookie contracts, mainly at the top of the draft. They strip those contracts down. And if there was any extra money to go around, well, that money just went to the couple of stars in the league, namely the quarterbacks. Didn't really go anywhere else. So, you know, you have a system that's there that's really swung too far in the other direction. Um, you know, there was never a... Never a time where, you know, things have come back up. Um, even if you look at it now, it's that the rookie performers are almost all underpaid. Um, the guys who are still bus are still overpaid. You know, just because they're not as overpaid as before doesn't mean that the teams don't look at those guys as overpaid. Like, the Jets right now probably view Zach Wilson as overpaid. That's pretty hard to be, as a, you know, considering what backup quarterbacks make. But it's probably true. <laughs> he's probably overpaid, um, just because he's that he's that bad. So you know, it, it could work to that their benefit as well, because for a player like that, you know, you'd be able to to get away from him free and clear after two seasons. But. Ultimately, I don't think it decreases the value of the draft pick, even even if it's maybe by a little bit. But I, I don't think it would only because it doesn't change the fact that you would be getting a good player and you would be signing that player for probably six years. It's just that you would have to do it sooner rather than later. Derek, how long is Rabel's tenure going to be if they go sub 500 from now on and miss the playoffs? Every year. Um, uh, that's a good question. Uh, it goes on to say four winning seasons in a row for a small market team. Um, guess he has two to three more years if this was the case. I kind of think that's probably the way it would be. Um, you know, I think that he is incredibly well liked in Tennessee. Obviously, he's done a tremendous job. It's like, you can't look at that roster and be like, yeah, you know, this was a great football team and they've, um, you know, they, they, they haven't, they haven't won because of him. Obviously that's not the case. Um, you can't look at last year and you can't look at that roster and go, man, he really screwed up with them. It's like they were a roster that needed to be overhauled. You know, if anything, the fact that they started so, so good Mask the fact that they they were really a terrible team. You know, by the by the end of the year, you saw it. But you know that 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 was a really good job, I think, by him to to even be there. Um, but yeah, I I think when when you deal with a smaller market team, and you have a guy like that who's very well liked, is good coach, um, you know, keeps you in contention. Um, you know, and I, I would think even even if they miss the playoffs the next couple of years, he'll at least keep them relevant, um, you know, somewhat relevant. Um, you know, I, I think he'll have time. I, I don't think that it'll be a situation where, um, you know, he gets let go because they think, 
he's the problem and they, they completely need a new voice. I, I think he's in a decent position there. Colin, do you think two starting caliber running backs on less than $8 million per year splitting carries will be the new norm or phase that out in a couple of years? That's too much money to spend on a running back. You, know, you, you probably want to be no more than $10 million combined on a running back. Um, let me just see where the teams are with cap spending right now. And these are going to be inflated a little bit because I think these account for everybody there but let me just look at uh, positional spending which is a little different obviously than annual spending but uh, let's just get an idea here running back this year you have about 20 teams that are sub 8-5. Probably 23 teams that are sub 10 million on the running back position. Um, so I, I, you know, in my mind, you don't want to be above 8. Um, so I, I think you, you want to be looking at uh, three running backs making like 3 million a year, 2 million a year, uh, two guys making four. You know, I, I think that's, that's more what you should be looking for um, than two guys who are, you know, quote unquote, name value guys earning around eight a year. Now, I, I know there's going to be some players, obviously, who, um, uh, you know, do pretty well. Um, you know, like Eckler comes to mind and he's on a deal for six. But, you know, like having a starting backfield. If your starting backfield was James Connor, uh, James Connor and Miles Sanders, like that'd be thirteen four for two guys. And to me, that's not a good backfield. Like I, I don't see that as being in any way, shape, or form useful. Um, you know, I, I would say more like. Uh, you know, the Ravens approach where you've got, you know, a guy at two, a guy at maybe four. Um, let me see some of these other teams. Um, I'm just trying to see anybody else that fits in there. It, it's just, it, it's a, it's a black hole position. Um But yeah, you know, I, I think you, you're just better off not spending much there at all. Um, but no, I, I don't think you're going to see, um, I don't think you'll see that. And if what you mean is like two starting caliber guys, um, you know, at a lower number, like let's say $4 million a year or something like that, I think I'd still say no on that um, if we're talking about free agent signings. Because for the most part, the older running back is probably going to do pretty poorly. Um, you know, you're not going to get a lot of years out of him. So, I mean, if you're talking about, um, you know, getting to those numbers from having like a uh, first round pick blown on a, a running back, and then you're going to couple that with a solid running back at $6 million a year, you know, I would think that's insane. Um, so... I don't think that'll be the case. Uh, I think you're going to see more teams go to 
kind of what was what what is the Kyle Shanahan San Francisco structure, which is just kind of ride the hot hand and have a couple of guys there. Um, you know, I, I think that would be the case. Uh, let's see, Michael, what players do you see as franchise cornerstones? Gosh, that's a good that's a good question. Um, you know, in Buffalo, I'm just going to go through the teams here. Buffalo is obviously Josh Allen. I don't think Miami has a cornerstone. Um, you know, I, I I don't think I'd have it as Tyreek Hill. Uh, New England, if there's a cornerstone there, I mean, I'd probably say someone like a Judon, but I mean, I don't see that. With the Jets, it's going to be Gardner, Ravens, Lamar Jackson, the Bengals, Joe Burrow, Browns. If it's not Watson, they're in trouble. Um, I don't think the Steelers really have a cornerstone player. I don't think the Titans have one. It's Lawrence with Jacksonville. Um, Colts are going to hope it's the quarterback they just drafted. Texans going to hope it's quarterback they just drafted. Um, you know, th- there's not a lot of teams where you look at and you say, yeah, you know, you've really got a cornerstone guy. Like the, there's someone that you look at and you say, okay, that's a guy that you build around for X amount of years because it's almost always got to be a quarterback and there's just not that many good ones. Like, you know, obviously Mahomes in Kansas City, you got Herbert in L.A., but it's like Denver, you know, who? Who you know, who would you look at in Denver and go, yeah, that, that's a cornerstone player? You know, the Raiders, who? Who would you say that about? You know, Jimmy Garoppolo? You know, in Washington, I mean, they they have a couple good players on the defensive line, but you know, are are those guys going to be looked at as like a cornerstone for a team? No, you know, for the Eagles, it's Hurts, the Giants. They paid Daniel Jones to be that, but I don't know. Dallas, I guess, has Prescott. Chicago is keeping their fingers crossed on Fields. Lions, I don't think they have anybody right now. Um, Packers don't really have anybody right now. Minnesota, that's one of those rare teams where I think you can throw the wide receiver in there and say Jefferson. Bucks have nobody. Saints have nobody. Panthers, you know, you're hoping on the rookie. Atlanta has nobody. Um, Arizona's hoping on Murray. Rams don't have anyone. Um, I know some will say Aaron Donald, but I mean, Aaron Donald's 30-something years old, right? Um, in San Francisco, Seattle, you know, the, the, these are teams that don't really have them. And, you know, it, it's hard to find that level of talent in the NFL because really, it, unless, and I, I know I said Judon with the Patriots, but, you know, it, unless you really have a, a standout rookie, um, you know, in like his second or third year in the league, or a, a standout quarterback, it's really hard to look at any of these teams and go, yeah, that's a cornerstone. Like, hey, you, you look at Tennessee, for example, and if you wanted to say someone like a Derrick Henry, you know, that peak performance level, even that, it, it's not something that's going to get you four years of any kind of sustained play. Um. You know, even with the Jets, you know, it might be a stretch to say Gardner is that kind of player only because if the offense, you know, if Rodgers gets hurt or sucks or 
retires after one year and the offense goes back to the Zach Wilson offense, there's only so much one guy can do on defense to, you know, really change anything with the team. You know, this is different than a decade ago with Revis and you're just kind of a different game and a different focus, um, you know, on that particular team and the, the way they did stuff. So, I, I, you know, it, it's very hard. There, there's not really a lot of cornerstone talents, I think, in the NFL um, right now. And, that, and that's actually a problem for the league. All right, let's see what we got here. Brian, it certainly wouldn't make them unique in this regard, but do you think the Chargers wait too long to admit their mistakes? Um, I don't think so. Like, I, I don't look at the Chargers as being a team that refuses to admit their mistakes. Um, I think... I think the Chargers this year are a team that probably put too much stock into being a wild card team last year. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with their roster, but there's no reason for them to be bringing back both Khalil Mack and Keenan Allen. None. You can make an argument for bringing one back. You can't make an argument for bringing two back. That's the perfect example of the restructures gone wrong kind of stuff um, where you're going all in on one season to where it's almost like if they don't make the Super Bowl, like what benefit is there going to be for them doing that? Like that, that's just, uh, um, you know, I, I just think a little bit off for them. But I, I don't think they've um, waited too long in general. Um, you know, to do that. I, I think they've been okay with what they do. Uh, I just think that a lot of the stuff they've done hasn't worked out the way they hoped. Uh, looks like you upgraded to a verified account today. No, I uh, did this before. I, I talked about this on the podcast a bunch of times. Kind of went back and forth on the, the concept of uh, paying for the Twitter verification and what pushed me over the edge was having the ability to keep at the time the two-factor authentication um you know i got my years ago i had my twitter account compromised and uh you know it was it was a pain now this was i was lucky in the sense that this was back when um this was probably 2013 uh, maybe 2014 2013 2014 probably time frame um you know, I, it was taken over by uh, something. I think I was posting a bunch of Arabic stuff or something. Um, Twitter was so, I guess, crudely done. Probably still is. But, you know, I was logged in on a different computer. So even though somebody took over my account, um, I realized that I was still logged in on a computer. And even though everything had changed... They didn't log me out from it. So that allowed me to go in and get my account back. But since that time, I know that people who have had their, their accounts um, get taken have had a very hard time getting their regular accounts back. And it takes a long time to do it 
to prove you're you and all that stuff. So um, some people did actually send me stuff on how to keep the uh, two-factor without paying for it. But I paid the whatever for it. I, I don't know, whatever it costs. Um, so I, I, had, uh, I had kept the verification mainly because of that. I still don't really use these other things. I actually get annoyed like... So having the ability to go back and edit stuff is kind of good, um, but it takes a longer time to post, um, you know, for, for your post to upload. I, I guess it goes through a different uh, channel to do that. And, you know, a lot of times, not, not that I've posted much, um, you know, or as much in the last couple of months, you know, since free agency, but a lot of times, you know, you, you do posts that are more like, you know, a couple of a uh, couple of things back to back to back. So you're replying to yourself, and it's like I got to sit there and wait 40 seconds before I can reply to myself. And it's like, yeah, that kind of sucks because, in a sense, you're almost trying to get off. You know, three rapid fire tweets. Um, you know, one one reply right to the other, just just to kind of tell a little story or explain what you're doing. And it's like you got to sit there and wait. It's like, okay, now I got to wait a minute. Oh, okay, now, now I can click a button and reply to that and uh, kind of finish the thought. So, um, you know, so that, that's my story with the, uh, the Twitter verification. So uh, if it wasn't, though, for the, the two-factor thing, I don't think I would have gotten that. Um, yeah, I don't care about the checkmark thing. That's silly. Uh, you know, but I, I probably would have got, uh, you know, wouldn't have gotten it and certainly I wouldn't have upgraded because he's limiting um, what you can view and I still don't get that but whatever uh, shoes what are the biggest wins for a player in a contract and the same for the team so that's you know that's a good question there's, there's probably no universal answer for that um, I would say that you know the structure in my mind, is that what you look for uh, in a contract for a player. So basically, you know, since you're not getting a fully guaranteed deal outside of the Deshaun Watson one, you know, I, I think mainly what you're looking at are those cash flows up front. So I think anyone who in the first year of their contract gets anywhere from 1.5 to two times the annual value in the first year, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a pretty strong deal for the player. Um, you know, the second thing I usually look at with the deals is structure. I, I look at those signing bonuses, option bonuses, and, you know, I just try to see from a functional standpoint, how much money is guaranteed. I don't really care what's guaranteed on a piece of paper. I just want to look at functionally where I look at that contract and I go, okay, it's going to cost them this much to cut the guy in year three. Are they really going to do it? Um, you know, to look at those deals, uh, on the team side, you know, it's the same thing. You're, you're looking, I think, at the, the cash numbers. Um, you're, you're looking at the way that, you know, those kind of break down. But I, I think the bigger thing that you look at for the team is where the contract is valued in the hierarchy of, um, you know, the position. And, you know, you can tell very quickly, like, when a team scores a big win, like, um, Danelle Hunter with uh, Minnesota, like the minute that deal got signed, it was just like, okay, that makes no sense, you know, 
relative to market why he's taken that deal. You know, and not surprisingly, he's been upset with that contract, you know, pretty much ever since. You know, him, Chris Harris years ago with Denver. And it's like, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, they, they were taking it for the benefit of the team. They love the team they play for. And it's like, guys, they're going to be complaining about this two years later. And that's exactly what happens with all those players. Um, you know, th- those are usually the things that you look at. Uh, length of contract, you know, the, the longer a contract is, especially if a player is not getting a um, uh, an equivalent offset in terms of like guar- like more guarantees and stuff like that. You know, if you're getting like a five-year deal, you know, that, that's a win for a team because, you know, it, it's still giving you the ability to have some upside potential if the player is one of those rare guys that actually exceeds the level of, um, you know, the level of the contract. Dave, what's the status on Derek Barnett's contract? I know they signed a two-year deal last offseason, but when do they convert his salary for this year? Seems like it would have been an easy cut. Um... I don't remember. Let me take a look. Uh, Barnett. Off the top of my head, I'm not really even remembering anything there. Let's see. Let's see. Derek Barnett. Okay, so he had an option bonus in his deal. So I don't think they really ever restructured it. Um... Yeah, I don't. I don't think they really ever restructured anything. Um, how much did he have guaranteed? I mean, he had. I mean, most of the deal was guaranteed, so it's not like there was really anywhere they could go with it. Um, so I, I don't think they really had an option to save money there. Um, I think he had two million of his salary was injury protected. Um, let's see, he had seven full, so he had five, five, so he, he already had some money, I think, guaranteed for this year. I, I don't think that they, they really had a, a solid out, um, there at all. I, I think that, uh, way, the way his contract was structured, um, you know, that, that's an example where you probably didn't have a choice. You know, even though he was coming off of injury, um, you know, they probably didn't have a choice based on the way the contract was set up. Tom, Chris Jones, insight. How big is the gap between him and Kansas City? Chiefs historically don't pay for past performance. A guy's hitting 30. Main extension is Kelsey, who took a team-friendly deal. Jones wants the bag. Any read on this? Nope. I have no read on it right now. Um... I would. I, I don't know. I, I have not kept up with it at all as to what he's asking for. Um, you know, so if, if you go back in time with uh, Chris Jones, right, he was um, very steadfast, I think, on looking for $20 million a year. And they tagged him, and then eventually they came up with a deal that, uh, you know, really, it was a... Um, I, I would say it was a, a pretty solid deal for Kansas City at the time. And obviously now it's it's paid off, right? He's he's one of these guys that, you know, it's gone over, over and over and over. Um, you know, Chris Jones was at 20. Um, 
Let me just see. That was signed. Where was Donald at the time? Donald was probably at 22.5. So my assumption, and you know, I could very easily be wrong on this, but my assumption would be if he was looking to hit 20 back then, he's probably looking to hit 30 in light of Aaron Donald having a 31.7. Um, you know, may, maybe a little bit less, but somewhere in that ballpark, um, you know, because that's where he was at before. And th there's no reason the Chiefs should do that deal. He's a great, great, great player. Um, there's no reason the Chiefs probably should do a deal like that if that's what he's looking for. It's just, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, how much are you going to get, you know, beyond that? Uh, you know, the Kelsey example you mentioned is a good one, right? You know, Kelsey, you don't know what production you're going to get. And obviously it's been terrific, but they signed him on just a crazy, yeah, a pretty crazy team deal. Like I, I would think that's a deal that you are advised by your agent not to take. And you're just like, I'm having fun playing football. I'll take the deal. Um, you know, that that's how that deal kind of reads to me. And I don't think you get that same kind of deal with Chris Jones. So I almost think if you're not getting it, it's going to be a bigger contract, you know, low, mid 20 millions, I guess. Um, but if you don't get that same kind of structure and he's looking for something, you know, 30 million a year or something like that, I, I think you probably walk away if you're the Chiefs. What a fun guy. Uh, why is there seemingly more of an emphasis on cash flow over guaranteed money? So the reason for that is, you know, in a sense, cash is king. Um, you know, your, your guaranteed money is money you're going to get at some point in time. Uh, it could void out. Um, you know, getting the cash earlier is always better, right? You know, you, even if you just stuck it in a bank account somewhere and gained some interest on it. Um, but there should be more of an emphasis in my mind on the cash flow of a deal. Like, let, let's say somebody has, for example, um, choose two contracts and we'll say $60 million guaranteed. So let's say player A gets $50 million paid to him in the first year. And let's say he gets $20 million paid to him in the second year, but only 10 million of that is guaranteed. Okay. Odds are he's going to earn $70 million over two years. And then whatever he gets in the third year. Let's say player B has $60 million guaranteed. You know, same same guarantee. But his contract is structured as $30 million and $30 million. So the guarantees are the same. First player earns more money. Okay. Has a lot more money coming to him in year one. That's a much stronger contract than player B, even though the guarantee is the same. Uh, and you, you could do that the same way. And let, let's say that the guarantee for player one is 50 million. Guarantee for player two is 60 million. But let's say the way that that guarantee works, it's let's say it's a team like the Steelers. They pay him $50 million in year one. And 
the guy with the 30 million, uh, 60 million guarantee only gets 30 million in year one. You know, that's $20 million more that you can take or an interest on, invest, do whatever you want with it. Then in year two, let's say that player is going to earn another $20 million. He's now earned 70 million over two years. Your other guy gets another 30 straight, 60 million. Yeah, it was all guaranteed. But, you know, the other guy earned 50 in the first year. Second year, you know, he's up to 70 and the only the other guy's at 60. And again, from a functional standpoint, if I just paid somebody $50 million, I'm not going to cut them the next year to save 10 or 20. I'm going to chase that. All right. Now, maybe you shouldn't be chasing it, but the reality of the situation is you're going to chase it. So that, that's why you look on the cash flow over the guarantees. The, the guarantees in many ways um, are a way for teams to cheap out. Like teams are going to base what they pay you, um, you know, on what they think they're going to get in return. So if, they're, if they think they're going to get $60 million from you in three years, all right. Now, I'm not saying they necessarily would guarantee 60 of that, but let's say if in the, the back of their mind, they're like, okay, we think we'll get 60 million of in value from this player over the next three years. Um, you know, and let's say that the, the typical contract would be 40 million guaranteed, all paid out in the first two years. Um, you know, and then that third year would not be guaranteed, or let's say it had some injury protection or something like that. If that team is confident that they're going to get sixty million in value in three years out of that player, what would the you know stronger contract be for the team? And you know, teams are more than happy to you know up a guarantee. So let's say instead of forty million guaranteed, they would be willing to do. 45 million guaranteed, but only 55 million over those three years because they're upping the guarantee. They're more than happy with that because their projections are we're getting 60 million of value with this guy for three years. But if we can get a, even a further discount on that by guaranteeing him a little more money, well, we're very confident we're going to pay him 60 over three anyway. So, all right, we'll up our guarantee to 45 if he's willing to take 5 million off the deal. We've saved 5 million. And our end result is basically the same, that we're going to have this guy on our roster for three years. So that's really one of the reasons why you want to look at the cash flows on a contract and, you know, um, kind of focus on that, kind of focus on that structure, um, kind of focus on those things. All right, last couple questions here. Bob, if the Jets don't make the playoffs this season, would you fire all the coaching staff considering Hackett was hired specifically for Rodgers? Um, God, let, let's let's not even go there. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't know. So the first thing you, you have to look at is why don't they make the playoffs? You know, are they not making the playoffs because the defense is giving up 40 points a game? Are they not making the playoffs because Rodgers got injured? Um, you know, what what is the reason for them not making the playoffs? So that that's the first thing that, that you look at. Um, my feeling is that if the, if the Jets don't make the playoffs this year, um, 
the general manager is gone, the head coach is gone, a lot of the assistants would probably go. But, you know, if they don't make the playoffs, let's say it's a season like Green Bay had last year, though, and they're, you know, 8-9 or something like that. Um, you know, when Rodgers wants to keep playing and Rodgers looked good and things went a little south, Rodgers is going to dictate who stays. Um, you know, he'll, he'll dictate some of that stuff. So, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I, I think that that probably is what would happen. Now, if things just are completely off the rails, yeah, everybody's getting fired. I mean, this is all one year for a lot of these guys. Colin, what percentage of a team's budget do you think has been spent so far? Are most teams incentivized to use it or lose it? Um, so I think for most of the teams, you know, unless you haven't signed your rookies, very high percentage of the budgets. Um, you know, obviously there's a couple more dollars that are laid out for extensions, but that's only a couple of players per team. Um, so, I, well, I wouldn't put an exact number on it right now. Um you know, it's up there. I don't think most GMs are incentivized to use it or lose it. I think when you look at um, fluctuations in budget year to year, you can see um, you can see that there are years where ownership is willing to overspend, and then there's years where they pull back. So I think if you don't use it, I don't think you really lose it. I think a lot of times you talk with ownership about it and go. Okay, our no, I know our budget was X, but we didn't get a deal done with this player. We were not as active in free agency as we thought we would be. Um, you know, we want the ability to spend a little more next year. Um, you know, is that good? You know, we're, we're not going to spend it this year. Can we, we save it for next year? And I, I think that pretty much works out. Setting the edge. Thanks for all your efforts. Well, thank you for listening. Uh, last question, Graham, uh, how do you think the Aaron Rodgers restructured contract with the Jets will look? I have no idea. Um, I really don't, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's like, there were so many different stories that came out about, um, you know, Aaron Rodgers, you know, I, I don't know, um, what kind of numbers they're thinking. I, I don't I don't know where that you know number is gonna land. My my assumption is gonna be that um it's in a very similar spot cap wise to what it would have been had the contract just remained in place um from when they traded for him. You know, where you've got a cap hit this year of like 15, 18, 20 million. And then next year, um, you know, that, that number rises to the mid-30s. And then who knows what happens after that, you know. Um, so I, I think that's probably how it will uh, end up working out. All right, I think that is it for me. So I, I think that covers uh, all the questions for tonight. 
Um, not sure if I'll be back next week. I know my daughter has a dance competition coming up. I'm not going to it. So I think everyone is home next weekend. So it probably depends on if anything interesting happens. Following week, we're looking at franchise tag deadlines. So I know we'll get something in there, uh, by that week. Um, so we'll see how the schedule, uh, works out. I'm hoping to have the wide receiver stuff that I mentioned. I'm hoping to have that out by this week or next week. Um, just depends on how time permits on if I'll be able to finish that off this week or not. Um, but I, I should be getting that one done soon. And, um, yeah, we'll talk about that a bit on here. Uh, but I think that is pretty much it for me. So everybody have a great week, and I'll talk to you all again soon.